0: Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Well, why don't we get started? Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for coming to the International Spy Museum uh, today for what I hope will be a, an interesting, uh, informative, and, I'm quite sure, entertaining uh, discussion. Um, my name is Mark Stout, I'm the historian here, for those of you who I haven't met. Uh, and we are very fortunate today... Can I grab the book here? We sure. are very fortunate today to have with us Stephen Talty. He's a widely published journalist who's contributed to the New York Times Magazine, GQ, Men's Journal, uh, and many other uh, magazines, uh, but also... Uh, He's a New York Times best-selling author of, um, uh, well, a number of fun books in history. Empire of Blue Water, which is a book about the pirate captain Henry Morgan. Um, uh, uh, Mulatto America at the Crossroads of Black and White Culture. The Illustrious Dead, The Terrifying Story of How Typhus Killed Napoleon's Greatest Army, which I think is a fabulous book title, and I congratulate you, you on that. And, of course, his latest book, which is the reason we're here today, is Agent Garbo, The Brilliant, Eccentric, Secret Agent Who Tricked Hitler and Saved D-Day. So, Stephen, welcome to the National Spy Museum. Great to be here. Thank you. So, who was Garbo? And you've, you've called him a, a bit of a Walter
1: Mitty of World War II. Uh, who was he, and, and why do you call him that? Well... Agent Garbo, was his real name was Juan Pujol. He was really a nobody when the war began. He was an ex-chicken farmer, believe it or not. Um, He was managing a one-star dump hotel in Madrid. He was about as far away from becoming a master spy as you and I are from competing in the Olympics this summer, I think. Um, No connections, really no skills to offer. Uh, He had only one real thing, and that was his raw imagination. Ever since boyhood, he had... Um, an imagination just really controlled his life. He, at one point, when he was six years old, drove a tricycle through a plate glass window because he was lost in the fantasy he was carrying out. I forget if it was a cowboy or an explorer. Um, so he, he was an unusual child. And I think one of the reasons he failed in life, He, he tried to be a student. He tried to be a soldier. He tried to be a businessman before the war. And he failed in all those things. He was just too restless. He wanted to serve this imagination that had been given to him. So when World War II came along... And Spain was not a participant in World War II. <clears throat> no, he, w- he had no obligation to go. He was living in Madrid. It was fascist-controlled. Franco was in control. Um, he'd been through the Spanish Civil War. He'd come to despise both sides in that war. And um, he'd been given a set of ideals by his father, um, primarily progressive ideas, the, the, the dignity of the individual, liberty. He really believed in these things. And so when the war came, he considered Hitler a demon, in his own words. And I was fortunate enough to read some of his letters. And one thing he said was, I wanted to start a personal war with Hitler, and I wanted to fight with my imagination. It was really the only skill set he had. So that's where we find him in 1941, um, dreaming of doing something for the Allies, dreaming of sort of living up to his father's ideals, but having very few routes to get there. Well, before
0: we get into what he did during World War II, which is uh, obviously the heart of the book and his, really his contribution mm-hmm. to, to history, how did you happen to get onto this topic? Uh, Juan Pujol is, a, is, a, is an important guy, but he's a fairly obscure individual. Uh, he's not well-known to the public, I think.
1: So right. how did you happen on this topic? I'm a fan of espionage books, and I was just reading one. I forget the title at this moment, but um, it was really just one or two sentences on this guy. and. Um, I thought it was fascinating, went right to Amazon.com, I was convinced I was going to find four or five definitive books, and it was just a memoir, and so I ordered a used book, it was by him and um, the guy who discovered him, Nigel West, uh, sort of the dean of British spy writers, and right from the beginning I could tell that it was full of, it was a spy's memoir, it was full of evasions, half-truths, he was hiding things, Um, and I said, well, this guy really deserves a definitive biography, not just from the fact of what he achieved, really um, helping turn the tide of battle at D-Day, but for the fact that he was self-made. I mean, there's so few double agents, so few spies that aren't sort of compelled into it, that aren't the victims of blackmail, who aren't captured behind enemy lines, who don't want money. Um, And to find a spy with pure motives, or at least from the beginning what appeared to be pure motives, was so rare that I wanted to sort of pursue it. So
0: how did Garbo then... So it's, the war started. Uh, he's in Spain, which is neutral, but has a fascist government. He's very uh, very much opposed to what fascism and Hitler
1: represent. How does he get himself into the war? What What are the first steps that he takes? Um, well, he's quite naive. He doesn't know what to do. He marches into the British Embassy in Madrid, announces that he wants to offer his services to the Allies, and the reply basically is, your services of what? <laughs> I mean, what are you going to do for us? <laughs> you, you're a hotel manager. You, you farm chickens. I mean, my God. And so he was rebuffed four separate times. The, the British didn't four, want four him. Four times. So four he was times. persistent here. So they he probably thought he was kind of crazy at this. Like, roundabout right visit three or four. Yeah, I think he was a running joke in the British Embassy, actually. Um, so he decided he needed something to show the British. And ironically, to become a British agent, he first had to become a German agent to volunteer for the Nazis. So that's what he did. He went to the German Embassy... Eventually met with a spy runner named Federico who worked for the Abwehr, the German intelligence agency. And at first Federico didn't believe him either, but one of Garbo's great charms, great gifts, was charm. He could I I really believe if he was on Wall Street, he would have gotten Bernie Madoff to invest with him. I mean, if you sat down with him, he had just this ability to get you to believe what he was saying, even if he was just making it up on the spur of the moment. So eventually he was sent to Lisbon by the Abwehr. Um, and there are many moments that are sort of Hollywood moments in Pujol's story, and this is sort of the Casablanca moment. Um, One thing he wanted to get was a physical thing he could show Federico, his spy runner. He met a guy. You mean as tangible evidence that he really is
0: able to deliver on his FBI promises?
1: A document, a letter, something. Um, And he met a Spanish guy who had what's called a special diplomatic visa, and this is sort of the Casablanca moment. This is Visa allowed any one of the people in um, Portugal, which was neutral, which was the capital of, of espionage at, the, at this point, to fly out on the afternoon plane. Literally true. And um, so he stole it from the guy's luggage, had it photographed, had a new photograph taken of him, had the stamps meticulously reproduced, and stuck the original back in the, the luggage. So now he had a document that... Really, men would have killed for in Lisbon, Portugal, in 1941. So he goes back to Madrid to his spy runner, Federico, slips it under a cafe table, and that's the moment when the Germans, the Nazis, really accepted this man was for real. This man was the real thing. So they saw in
0: him then, if I understand, a potential to uh, have a spy who could travel to Britain and report from Britain, uh, Germans, Germany's enemy at that point, about what was going on in that country? Is that is that where
1: we're, g- we're going with this? Absolutely. Um, Hitler and the German high command in general um, didn't like spies. Hitler hated spies. He considered them to be criminals. And they had very few assets within um, England. And even those assets they had, unknown to them, were had been turned. They were double agents. So they were looking for recruits to go and report on British war aims, on American war production, anything they could get. So he volunteered to go, but he actually ended up in Lisbon, pretended he was in, Lo- in London, and just started making up stories. Um, Where did he get his information? How does, he, how does
0: he even begin to pretend he knows what's right. going on in Britain if he's in Portugal?
1: I, you know, he didn't even speak English. I mean, this is sort of, <laughs> it's incredible what he achieved. But I compare him to sort of a rag and bone man, some guy who's walking the streets, picking up anything he can, and making up uh, bulletins about it. He'd go and see a movie and see a newsreel. The newsreel might show four seconds of a, a destroyer, and that would become a two-page thing. He would just make up the capabilities, make up the torpedo t- torpedoes on there, and also what it was being used for. Um, and he just did it so well that when MI5, the British um, Secret Service Agency, later asked its analysts to look at those early messages, they refused to believe that this man hadn't been in England when he was writing them. They were so accurate, so convincing. Um, but he was just making them out of phone books, out of propaganda flyers, anything he could get his hands on. So
0: he established himself as a German spy in Britain, except that he's not actually in Britain, but never mind about that. The Germans don't know yeah. that. Uh, at what point, then, does he sort of approach the British again and, 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 and yet again offer his services? How does that come about? He sees At this point, he's, he's not a double agent yet. He's only spying for Germany, albeit... Uh, you know, fleecing them. Exactly.
1: Um, he goes in when he's in Lisbon. He tries the embassy there. He gets the same response. And I think any sort of right-minded flim-flam man would have just gone and volunteered for the Nazis at that point and taken their money. Um, but what he does, he creates one message about an armada going to the island of Malta. And this gets the British attention because Malta is a very important mm-hmm. island in the fortress of Europe. And they... Basically, put two and together, they see that the Germans send aircraft they redirect warships to attack this armada, which does not exist, and the British know it doesn't exist, but finally, they see a spy that has the German high command's confidence and who are moving real assets in real time so how did the British know what's in his report so you,
0: you said he sent this fake spy report to to Germany about a British you know armada going to Malta. How did the British know anything at all about this? Well,
1: they had enigma they were they were breaking the code, so that's okay. one of the enigma machine allowed them to break the german codes and to read the secret telegrams between different agencies and so they read this incredible telegram saw the german response which was you know we're we're routing aircraft Let's routing warships it. yeah and they said this man has value because it's so hard to get trust from the german high command and they eventually put two and two together they they realized that this this sort of comical figure who'd been walking into embassies asking to work for them was the same guy who was who had, in a certain way, the German high command in their pocket. So they smuggled him into London and they debriefed him in a house in London and his career began.
0: So what would you say then was Garbo's sort of first big success? At what point does he start to become actually
1: um, useful to the British uh, war effort? Um, you know, there's a term... In espionage, called build-up, at least in World War II, in British circles, and that is just getting uh, an agent um, confidence from from the Germans, basically. So they gave him chicken feet. They gave him small bits of military information that was 100% true, and slowly his reputation as an agent within London, within England, began to rise. So you have to pass some real secrets
0: to the Germans to build him up to use him later for for the deception.
1: Absolutely. Um, Just going back a little bit, um, during his debriefing in London, one interesting thing I found was that, um, you know, the British were not sure that he wasn't a triple agent, that he wasn't coming over pretending to work for the British and really spying for the Germans. And they asked him, what what is your motivation? You know, why are you doing this? You're from a neutral country. You don't have to be risking your life. And he told them this great story about his brother, Joaquin, who had gone to France, had been traveling the country roads, seen the Gestapo, pull innocent people out of a farmhouse and shoot them in the back of the head. And he, Joaquin came home, told him the story, and Juan at that moment decided, I must do something. I have to volunteer my services. In researching the book, I found that Joaquin had never been out of Spain. He'd never been to France. That massacre had never occurred, and that Juan Pujol was really bamboozling his, spe- his second spy agency. For their own good. For their own good. He wanted to work for them so badly that he wasn't going to, you know, let them deny him. Let the truth stand in the yes, way. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, so his first real big coup was probably North Africa. When he... Um, so the Allies invaded North
0: Africa in late 1942. It right. was the, the first major American contribution to the European war.
1: Absolutely. Okay. And Garbo, he was called Garbo at that time because he was the best actor in the world. They were very impressed by his skills. And so they gave him the full details of the invasion. Where, when, who, and... Wrote it out in a telegram, sent it to Madrid. You know, and that that was a communique that had it been received in real time would have changed the course of that invasion. But they planned it so it arrived two days late. So it arrives on their desk, Federico and his boss open it, and here in their hands is really, you know, the inside of British war planning. And they're so impressed at that from that moment on he's really just their gold edge assets.
0: So they overlooked the fact that it, it came a little too late they, the, or the implication right. of the fact that it came a little too late sort of never occurred to them. Like he, no. had, he could get this stuff and next time it'll be on
1: time was sort of what they were imagining. Well what they did is send him a radio and they said next time you know you communicate in real time with us 20 minutes later or 30 minutes later this is not going to happen again but obviously you have access to the, the best information that we're getting. So who was Tommy Harris and how does he figure into the Garbo story? <clears throat> Well, Tommy Harris is one of the guys who bought that original story about uh, the massacre in in France. He was a MI5 agent, half-Jewish, a former artist, uh, a real prodigy, a brilliant guy in his own right. And he was basically Pujol's handler. He was the one who was the conduit from Pujol to the double-cross committee, who sort of parceled out the information that the Allies wanted, the doubles, double agents to pass. So the
0: Double Cross Committee was basically one of the organizations sort of running Britain's big deception strategy or
1: policies overall. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, the thing about Tommy Harris and the thing about sort of British intelligence in general is that one thing I discovered is that the British really valued eccentricity um, and they valued imagination as a war asset. Um, Hitler did not. Hitler mistrusted his spies um, especially because early on they had told him that none of his his assaults were going to work. They told him that the French would not, the Maginot Line would not collapse. Um, but the British really used it as a tool. And um, there's one quote I read that uh, one spy described being in this sort of coven of spies working out plans, and he called it a fresh ride of ideas flying up and down the halls. That would never have been acceptable in, you know, the Abwehr. They, they recruited um, from military families, they recruited bureaucrats, they recruited people who could just run the business, sort of as an import-export business. Well, and there was a real sort of imagination gap between the two sides. And I think Pujol would never have fit in on the German side, but he was sort of accepted and welcomed into the British side because they, they valued what he possessed. So
0: Garbo is doing all this great work uh mm-hmm. feeding this information, some of it real uh, some of it deceptive uh to the germans uh but at some point he starts to you know uh, in his in this fantasy you know world, this alternate reality, he starts to recruit sub agents who are reporting to him as well right uh so it's not just him mm-hmm. it's a whole eventually a whole bevy of other people who are allegedly reporting to the Germans. you want to talk about that for for a minute
1: right he wanted to have eyes and ears. Really globally. I mean, he had a guy in Buffalo. He had um, secret fascists that he found. It was one called the Brotherhood of the World Aryan Order. He had totally fictitious. Um, yes, yeah, so and none know, of these people exist. None of these people Garbo's exist. Garbo's real and everybody else is a figment right. of his imagination in MI5 and 6. Absolutely. They're all fake and they're all created for very tactical reasons. If there's um, a convoy, a fake convoy that the British want the Germans to believe is living, leaving Liverpool he has to have a guy in Liverpool overlooking the port. So they create a guy in Liverpool overlooking the port. And when that job is done, um, they actually kill him off. And his his uh, death notice appears in the Liverpool Post, and somebody else pops up in the next sort of strategic area where they want a fake convoy, a fake armada, a fake airfield to be found. And so he was sort of directing... Um, the Germans' eyes to different places where the British wanted them to look, and away from places, places like where D-Day was being assembled, uh, where they wanted th- that they wanted to be hidden.
0: Now, another character here in this story, whom I believe Pujol actually writes completely out of his autobiography, uh, <laughs> is his wife, Ericelli. What was what was her contribution, uh, or or
1: in in what way does she actually <clears throat> figure into this story? Um, Araceli was this beautiful woman. Um, her family told me he, she looks like Ava Ab- Gardner. She's not quite that beautiful, but uh, quite close. Very glamorous, very socially ambitious. And he marries her in 1940 in Madrid. Um, and they're really partners in crime. She, she goes to the American embassy trying to drum up real support for him. And she's essential in the beginning. But when they get to London, she's very much isolated. She's a Spanish woman not speaking the language, living in London, Not knowing the the ingredients for simple foods in the in the British cupboards, and it's probably hard to cook good Spanish food in wartime London. (laughs) I think it's probably hard to cook any good food in wartime London. Um, So slowly, she begins to sort of separate from her husband. And at one point, she actually calls Tommy Harris, his handler, and says, "If you don't get me an exit visa and get me back to Spain, I'm going to reveal. I'm going to march in the Spanish embassy and tell everyone who Garbo really is and what he's doing." Um, So this marital tension had sort of escalated into an international incident. And the interesting thing about this is, at this point in 1943, they're starting to think about D-Day. Garbo has on his mind the lives of thousands of GIs and British soldiers. He has to stop his wife from getting out of the house, essentially. So he cooks up a scheme where he calls her, tells her her he's been arrested. He's in um, Camp 20, which is this really terrible prison used to house German spies and um, tells her that when her threat was revealed to the head of MI5 he threatened to fire Pujol and Pujol struck him so that defending her honor he just attacked the head of MI5 this is all imaginary it's never happened so she's brought to the prison he's there in you know, prison clothes he looks terrible and he says they're going to pass judgment on me tomorrow and it could be a death sentence so suddenly, is faced with the the reality that her gossip, her threat, has really endangered the life of her husband. And she goes home and attempts suicide in their apartment, even though some people believe it was a fake suicide. They were both sort of actors, well, both fabulous. either Either way, it's, right. uh, it's, a, it's a bad sign about sort of mental health. Yes. But, it, I mean, there is sort of, um, I mean, it's comic tragic. I mean, this is something that he felt he needed to do, but he's... Turning these skills, these inborn skills that he has, against his own wife. Well, the, the thing that really strikes me about this is
0: that the, the Garbo you portray um, uh, up to this point mm-hmm. is a guy who's, uh, you know, he's he's got the good of humanity uh, in his heart. He's he's a, 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 you might almost say sort of a, a playful individual. I sort of get mm-hmm. this sense, and yet he does this thing, which, frankly, is incredibly cruel. Yes, to his wife. Uh, how do you reconcile that, or what, what does that tell us about Garbo?
1: You know, I think the old cliche about spies being able being able to comp- comp- mart- com- their compartmentalize their lives. Compartmentalize. Thank you. <laughs> um, is is true in in Garbo's case? He was able to do this very ruthless thing to his own wife because she was attacking something that he believed in so strongly. And um, there are records the the head of counterintelligence for MI five saw him. Hours after this had gone down, and said he appears to be depressed. And so he felt it, but I think he just had this ruthlessness in one part of his being that allowed him to do things that normally in normal life, I mean, he led a, a pretty um, honorable life after and before the war. I don't think he would have done this in, for any other reason, but he, he was able to do it for
0: the cause. I'm actually reminded of Barry Goldwater's famous uh, comment that, what is it, extremism in the defense
1: of liberty no is vice. no vice. Yes. Yeah. yes, he felt that way, absolutely.
0: Um, so you, you, you referred to D-Day here, and we'll get to that in just a moment, which is really where I think the big payoff comes uh, mm-hmm. for Garbo. But do you get the sense that the British were all along playing the really long game with this guy? I mean, he started working for the Brits in what, 1940, 41? 41. 41. Right. D-Day is until mid-1944. Did they sort of have in mind all along that this is somebody who could really be a truly strategic war-winning asset, or were they kind of more
1: making it up as they went along? Well, you know, I compare – the double-cross system has been given many comparisons. Some people have compared it to an orchestra, that there's the first violins, there's the second violins, there's the trombones, and they're all playing the same theme together to get the, the song across. I think it's more accurate to call it close to the Hollywood studio system, the classic studio system. They thought in terms of long-term narratives. They had actual writers who worked these things out over months and years. They had a props department. They had a lighting department. They had... In Plan Bodyguard, they had fake warships, they had fake airfields, so they were really projecting a whole alternative, alternate reality. And I think from 1941 to 1943, they had a handful of double agents, people like Tate and Brutus, and they were constantly sort of seeing what kind of reviews these guys got from the Germans, were their, were their telegrams, were their missives being taken seriously, were, were the Germans actually acting on this intelligence? So they were playing a long game, but they were also testing their own agents to see who was good enough to carry D-Day. And when it came down to it, it was really Garbo and Brutus, with a little help from Tate, who had sort of made the cut. These guys were the stars. You know, These guys were the face of the operation. So they were building confidence in, in them, absolutely. But had Garbo not performed, had his messages not been believed... He would have been dropped. I don't think he would have been allowed to carry that message. So what
0: role did Garbo play then in preparing for the D-Day invasions, the beginning of the Allied liberation of France and ultimately of all of Western Europe?
1: Um, Essentially, part of Operation Fortitude was to they had this audacious idea that they were going to disguise the Normandy invasion by creating a fake million-man army that was going to be headquartered in Dover that was aimed at Calais And that this was going to be an alternate story to pass to the Germans. That our main effort then will go in the pot of Calais. Right. That the main invasion is coming at Calais, and that Normandy is a feint. Normandy is a fake attack to draw your reserves down, to get those Panzer divisions moving towards the wrong area. And um, Garbo was really the point of the spear in passing that message. He passed the order of battle, which divisions were in which city, along the eastern and southeastern coast of England. And he, bad, he gradually built up an idea in the German mind that this huge army was there waiting, um, in reserve, waiting for the Normandy invasion to take place, waiting for the Germans to react, and then they were going to go into Calais. So he was, he was essentially, um, you know, selling the vision of this secret force.
0: So how successful were these deception efforts of which he was, you know, the, the,
1: the leading component? They were incredibly successful. I mean... In January 1944, Eisenhower went to Noel Wilde, who was the head of the deception operations that commanded um, Garbo, and said, Just give me 48 hours without the German 15th Army um, on my neck. 48 hours was sort of the standard of success. You know, I think a lot of people, casual observers of World War II, um, think that D Day was over on June 7th. That once we had made those beaches, once we'd gotten the first troops on, that battle was essentially over, and that's very much not true. Um, Eisenhower was just as worried about the days afterward, about resupplying, about pushing up towards Cain, and um, about the German counterattack. So it was really Garbo's job to keep those panzer divisions, to keep those troops who were being held in France around Calais, being held in Belgium for the real D-Day, to hold them in their places, to sort of cement their tracks where they were. So the deception actually continued for... It went on weeks for weeks after. and months. I mean, those troops—they um, kept waiting for that million-man army. They kept looking for the insignia that um, that Garbo told them was coming. Once you see these divisions showing up, you're going to know that this is f- the first army Fusag, and um, you have to wait for those—you know—for those divisions, for those regiments before you attack, before you counterattack. So, what was Garbo's
0: role then in the remaining months of the war? I mean, the war actually dragged on until early May right. of 1945.
1: Um, he did a few things. I mean, the main thing that he did was that one of Hitler's sort of last gaps was the V-1 and the V-2 uh, rocket weapons. And German intelligence wanted him to be a spotter for those rockets that were pounding London and that the Germans really saw as kind of a miracle weapon. They wanted him to report where where they were striking so that they could um, better plan, better engineer, and, and direct the bombs towards central London to get the maximum of casualties, basically. And so he was um, delaying, he was misreporting, and he was trying to draw those rockets away from the center of London. And he was, uh, it wasn't a major effort of his, but he was mostly successful in that.
0: So the war ends, and I've heard stories at any rate that Garbo, not real long after the war, actually faked, faked his own death so that he could disappear into the
1: ether. Is, is this true? It is true. Um, his sort of last caper was his own disappearance. Um, it came in 1948. He'd had some inquiries from people in Spain of um, some of the people he worked with in German intelligence trying to track him down. and so, so he was potentially in fear of his life. He was afraid of Nazi reprisals. He was through the end of his life, really. And um, that's one of the reasons he moved after the war. He moves to Venezuela, um, becomes a farmer again, fails at that. It starts all over again. His real life starts. Um, and the marriage breaks up. His Ericelli goes back to Spain with his three children, and he really paid a high price for, for the work he did. I mean, I think that, that marriage probably would have survived without, you know, the obsession he had with Garibo. So he's in Venezuela. He's afraid of these Nazi reprisals. And he calls Tommy Harris and tells him, please spread the rumor that I was killed in Mozambique, that I died in Mozambique of malaria in 1948. And that really sort of held. People did not think about Garibo, did not bring up the name. And his real identity wasn't discovered really until about 1984.
0: So I understand, then, that in his later decades of life, he was estranged from his family, which perhaps is not surprising in the case of Araceli, at any rate. <laughs> but, uh, but you found at least some of his family members, I understand, and, and spoke with them, and, and they helped in the preparation of this book. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about how you found them and, and also just sort of about what happened to the, to the, to the, to the Pujol or the Garbo family uh, in sure. the 40 years after World War II? Um, Aricelli, then, we'll, then we'll
1: go to questions. Okay. Araceli moved back to Madrid, um. As I said, she was very ambitious. She eventually married an American named Chrysler. He was the uh, former body double for Rudolph Valentino. And he'd become an This is just entrepreneur. the story that keeps getting. Right? <laughs> I know. It There's more, believe me. Okay. Um, so they get married, and they eventually open the Chrysler Gallery, which still exists in Madrid, and um, it's run by Pujol's son. And she's um, one of the great sort of post-war art galleries in Europe and Spain and so they have a she has all her dreams come true she has wealth and and um, fame and she has interesting work um, but the kids grow up believing that their father is dead which to me is the main mystery of Pujol's life how could he he was I mean he was a very sympathetic a very warm-hearted man a very mischievous man but how did he allow his children to grow up in Madrid without him and so I interviewed them I, I spoke to Juan Chrysler, who was his son, was Juan Pujol, in the back of his gallery in Madrid. And we started talking about the disappearance, and the man burst into tears. This is like 45 years later, um, because he, never, he grew up without his dad. And um, so I found the three existing um, sons and daughters of Juan Pujol in Madrid. Um, and they had this reunion with him in 1984 when he reemerged for the 40th anniversary of D Day. And and right I at believe moment, he actually went to Normandy in fact he went to Normandy there's a great story there he um, he was on the beaches and you know there was newsmen all over and uh, there was a big group of veterans and one journalist asked um, one of the guys one of the soldiers do you remember do you know of a man named Garbo? and the soldier said yeah I've heard the name I heard he covered the invasion and the journalist said yeah he's standing right next to you and Juan Pujol was right there and I think that really that day even though he was he was very upset about all the people he didn't save. That was his reward. There's no memorial to Juan Pujol. Um, we still haven't given him a medal in in America. But that day was his reward. To see these people with their wives and their children and their grandchildren, to him, that was what he had, had worked for. Well,
0: I interrupted you. And also on uh, when he came to France, you say he met his, met his children again.
1: Yes, he went to Barcelona. They had a reunion. And um, Ericelli, Ericelli basically told her children... You know, don't hold on to the bitterness. You know, they were so surprised that this man even was living. And she said, You can have, you know, recriminations or you can have a life with this man. So they embraced him. And I was able to read the letters that he wrote to his daughters and to his granddaughter, Tamara, who was very helpful in the book, opened up the family archives. And um, it's just, it's sort of a wonderful story of of reunion and lack of bitterness. And they still feel that way. Um, They don't question why he left them. I think that's a, you know it's sort of a very generous thing to do, and the funny thing to me is that Pujol always remained Pujol. He's always sort of a jokester, and um, he met the children. The children were all very success, successful, well educated, and um, he had remarried at the time. But he went up to Ericelli and he said, "Why don't we get married again?" <laughs> he did such a great job with these kids. I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I left you. And, she just went to the kids and she said, your father is crazy. <laughs> he, ha- he hasn't changed one bit. But there was always that sort of mischievous boy from, that never left him. And I think that's the great story of, of Juan Pujol is that he found an outlet for the one true gift he had. And that outlet was basically sort of saving Western civilization. That, that was his intent. Well, I can't think of a better note
0: to end this on. So at this point, I'd be uh, delighted to take uh, questions. If you'll wait for the microphone, the gentleman right here, we're recording this for our podcast. Uh, Fascinating. The the question I have relates to his misinformation to the Nazis about where the D-Day invasion would come, Mm -hmm. which would have become obvious to the Nazis on day three or four. So how is he able to continue to uh, remain in their confidence to the end of the wars, especially with, you mentioned, uh, misinformation on the V-2 rockets? How did he explain away, if he did, the fact that his reporting on D-Day was wrong and maybe V-2? Didn't they put two and two together?
1: Well, essentially, he created regiments and divisions that didn't exist as part of this million-man army. He said, you're going to see as part of this feint at Normandy, you're you're going to see certain divisions, but the real ones, which are completely imaginary, are still at Dover. So when the invasion came, this is all planned out, of course, none of the divisions that he said were at Dover appeared on those beaches when they studied the dead, when they got reports about the insignia on the arm none of those people showed up at Normandy. So he could still create the illusion that there were still these million men. I mean, the Luftwaffe did not have good reconnaissance at this point. They couldn't really fly over um, and and sort of check who was remaining in, in the eastern shore of England. So all these divisions that were running through Normandy, he kept saying this really audacious idea that you're not seeing what you're seeing. What you're seeing is an attempt by the Allies to fool you into bringing those reserves down. And as large as that army is at Normandy, there's an even larger one getting ready at Dover to come and crush you should you make that move down. So it was really sowing confusion and um, and creating these false divisions, these false insignia that never showed at Normandy and that were sort of being held in reserve. Uh, I believe the lady in blue right there had a question. What language was he communicating in with Germany since he didn't speak English? He was writing and um, sending Morse code in Spanish back to Madrid. Federico was his handler in Madrid, so they would translate. Um, Basically, Tommy Harris got the instructions, the basic sort of storyline of the day or the storyline of the week, saying, you know, we want there to appear to be a naval convoy heading toward wherever, towards Belgium this week. And that would be part of a larger war plan. And Pujol was given the freedom to sort of make up which sub-agent that would go to, wh- how they would see it, what pub they would hear that rumor in. And he would send it in Spanish and it would go back and be translated into German. And if it was important enough, it would go back to Berlin in German. And my understanding is
0: actually that a lot of uh, Garbo's messages were very long and florid and filled right. with all this emotive language uh, that, that, their German, that the German case officers would have to, to wade through as
1: well. Yes. Yeah, especially in the beginning. He didn't have a lot of information, so he created the style of sort of the flamboyant Spaniard, the Mediterranean writer. and Sort of playing to the stereotype, perhaps, on purpose. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And he was so emotional about the Nazi cause that he would get carried on. And then when you really study those early messages, you would see that there was very little information, hard facts in there, but there was just passion and there was speculation. But towards the end of the war, he was sort of writing like Hemingway. He had so much information from the British that it was very staccato. It was... This division, this amount of troops, so it changed drastically. Gentleman here in blue on the aisle.
0: Thank you. It's very interesting. Was American intelligence aware of this person, and what did they think of him?
1: Well, Eisenhower certainly was, um, and Eisenhower met Tommy Harris after the war and said, "You've saved a lot of lives." So he was, wor- he was aware of Mr. Pujol, um, and J. Edgar Hoover actually asked to meet him after the war, and he was flown to America, and they met. Peugeot was hoping that he was going to be recruited you know, and work for the CIA. It never happened, um, but he just wanted to meet him. He was really sort of a spy spy. He was a legend within the various agencies. Um, many considered this the masterpiece of World War II deception, um, but publicly he was not very well known. Right there. How would you compare
0: the importance uh, as a double agent of Garbo with Popoff during World War II. Can you comment
1: on that? Uh, Dude, go s- Yeah, the tricycle, Agent Tricycle. Yes. yes. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think there were two different kinds of spies. Pujol was essentially a fabulist. I mean, he he created this network. He sold it to the Germans, and he was in London, sort of working the network. Um, Popoff was very much. Um, I think his specialty was sort of one-on-one. I mean, he was sent to places like Belgrade. He met Gestapo officers, and he met German intelligence agents. And his specialty was sort of the personal touch, I think. Um, both of them were given D-Day plans along with Brutus. Um, I think Garbo's contribution to D-Day was more important. He, he passed more of the order of battle um, to the Axis powers than, than um, Tricycle did. But... Um, Two different styles, but I think um, Garbo, his information proved more vital to the, to the war effort in the end.
0: Are there any other questions? A uh, young man right here in the front row. Wait, if you'll wait for the microphone.
1: After Garbo went into hiding, where did he went exactly? He lived in Caracas, Venezuela for a long time. He, lo- he worked as a translator for Shell Oil. Um, translating Spanish to English and also helping the shell workers speak in Spanish. He opened a little gift shop with his wife. Um, He started a couple of businesses that failed. Um, I spoke to Juan Juan Chrysler, his son. He said, my father was the worst businessman I've ever heard of. Um, And, you know, one thing that sort of moved me in in reading this was that, uh, or researching this, was that he must have been tempted to use that power that he had one more time. I mean, he was broke in Venezuela. He couldn't support his family. He was... Kind of like a you know uh, a superhero with one power, this ability to get people convinced, and the, the temptation to become you know a Ponzi schemer or to sort of become dishonest in business must have been overwhelming for him. But he never did. Well, I can't help but ask: um, with that power and being sort of uh,
0: mischievous, was he a ladies' man? Were there were there mistresses along the way? <laughs>
1: Well, one well of it his, has to be a hard temptation to resist, I would think. One of his sub-agents was a mistress in the Ministry of War that he was supposedly carrying on this torrid affair with. Uh, she didn't exist. There are rumors that it happened in, uh, in Venezuela. I was never able to talk to anyone. that I could not get two sources for any mistresses in Venezuela. But, it just uh, shows he's good at his business. So. <laughs> exactly. All right, uh, the lady yeah. directly yeah. behind yeah, you there, Laura. Are you familiar with the movie 36 Hours? But James Garner has it has some elements. Oh really? No, of, I'm not of this uh, uh, disinformation. Right. Uh, and I was wondering if there were any other um, movies that had this, but you were to see if you could catch it on Netflix. It's thirty six hours in James will. Garner. I know that Operation Mincemeat, Ben McIntyre's excellent book on another deception operation, is being made into movie as we speak. Um, this is available for film rights, should anyone, you know, have Hollywood connections. Um, so that's really... Uh, the, for, the, for, the, for the microphone, the, the question was, who would you like to see play Garbo? Who's, who do you have in mind here? Um, I'm thinking Javier Bardem for the Spanish angle. And if you want to use an American actor, I always felt that um, Ed Norton had a, an ability to sort of have a secret personality within his performance. So I think he might not be bad. Well, what happened to right, the German right. handler? Um, he Did went to one of his one of Garbo's last missions was to go back into Madrid, talk to Federico and his boss Kulenthal, because the um, British were afraid that the Fourth Reich was going to go underground, that there was going to be a secret network of army officers and intelligence agents that were going to try to keep the Nazi cause going. So he met with Federico and and with Kulenthal, and it's sort of semi dangerous operation. And they still considered him a kind of God. They were apologizing to him for not winning the war, and um, they tried to give him money. So the illusion carried on right till the end. I mean, had they known, they would have probably shot him, you know, on site, but um, he did one last bit of intelligence for, for MI5. Well, sadly, as Laura notes, we uh, correctly notes, we are indeed out of time. Uh, I I know
0: there are some remaining questions, so uh, I'd encourage you to uh, meet Stephen's book, uh, meet Stephen uh, down uh, below where he will be signing his book, and let's all thank Stephen Talty for a fascinating talk.
1: Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.